Lord, we just thank you this morning that you are with us, you are here, and that you know each of our situations. And in this very room, Father, there are people that are struggling. There are challenges in family. There's challenges in finances. There's challenges with health issues. There's challenges with relationships. And so, Lord, we bring each of these situations to you. We recognize how deeply you love us. We recognize as well that you are working in spite of these situations in our lives. And so we pray for your grace, your comfort, your understanding. And Lord, I ask that just this Christmas season, your presence would be more real to us than ever before. We would not be seduced by the intensity of the season But, Father, we would enjoy each and every moment savoring our times with people that we come into contact with. And I pray that you would enrich us through this season as we honor and glorify your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. All right, you may be seated. I'm going to just share this morning from the Gospel of John, a very familiar text of Scripture. We're in the Christmas season, and I can't think of a... A more meaningful text than John chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 16. We'll go down to verse 21. A number of years ago, a short drama entitled The Long Silence was actually enacted. And in this scene, they were creating an end-of-time scene where billions of people were scattered at the great plain before God's throne. Most were shrinking back from the sense of God's presence, His brilliance, And yet there were some groups near the front speaking with heatedness and not rather cringing with shame, but were filled with defiance and belligerence. They were saying, could God truly be right in judging us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette as she ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number that was imprinted there from a Nazi concentration camp. She said, we endured terror and beating, torture, and eventually death. In another group, a young Negro boy lowers his collars and he says, what about this? Demandingly, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes said, why should I be suffering when it wasn't my fault? Far across the plain were hundreds of such groups, each having complaints against God, against the evil and suffering that he has allowed in our world. How lucky, they thought, God was to live in heaven, where all that was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping, nor fear, nor hunger, nor hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For in their minds, God had led a pretty sheltered life. So each of these groups sent forth a leader, a chosen one, because they had suffered so much. A Jew, a Negro, Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thamelamide child. And in the center of the plane, they consulted with each other. And at last, they presented a very clever case. Before God, in their minds, could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. And their decision was that God should become a man, sentenced to this earth. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think that he's lost his mind. Let him be betrayed by close friends and let let him face false charges. Be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. And then let him be tortured. 
At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone, and therefore let him die. Let him die so that there'll be no doubt that he died, and let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentencing, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word, no one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. Now, we recognize this is a dramatization, but the reality was this did not just originate in the heart of a human person. That this was actually God himself allowing himself to experience all the suffering and sorrow that humanity has experienced. And so often when we walk through this journey of life, and I've experienced it and you have, how many people have challenged you with the fact that, you know, if God is so good, why does he let so much evil happen? And yet the question is actually the wrong question. Because God is not the source of evil. God is the one who wants to address the evil in our lives. And so as we turn to John, very familiar text, John 3.16, we find the real motivation for why God, God had died for us. But before I get there, I have to ask another question. Why did God have to die? Why doesn't God just forgive us? I've actually had people say that. Why doesn't God just forgive? The answer, simply put, is that it would not be just. In other words, where is the justice in that? The innocent dying for the guilty is not justice. How many see that? The innocent person dying for a guilty person does not seem to be just. When someone sins, they have actually violated someone else. It's unjust for nothing to happen as the victim has suffered in some way. There must be some form of restitution. And everyone in this room feels that very deeply. Someone does something to you. They've wronged you in some way. There's a deep feeling inside that something should be done to redress the evil that has been done to us. We've all felt that. We may not articulate it. We may understand the Christian message, but there is a sense in our innermost being that injustice must be addressed. So, in the Middle Ages, a biblical scholar by the name of Anselm wrote a book entitled Why God Became a Man. And he tried to answer the question, why God had to die. Now, obviously, we're talking about God in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Because he became a man. God became a man. God in the flesh. And so on the teaching of why Jesus had to die, he deals with this whole issue of justice and forgiveness. Ansem's focus is on the demand of justice that goes along with mercy and forgiveness. And so theologian Philip Carey writes, he assumes the classic... uh, conception of justice as rendering each his due. Uh, That is paying what one owes. The key concept Absom introduces is this idea of satisfaction, which means paying what is owed to someone who has been harmed, offended, or dishonored. And although God cannot be harmed in himself, He can be dishonored by us as creatures. How many know that's true? We can dishonor his name. Because God is better than the whole world or infinity of worlds. The debt incurred by sin or disobedience to God is an infinite debt. 
To leave the dead unpaid, Amsom argues, is not mercy but injustice. If someone cannot make satisfaction for his offense, the only just alternative is punishment. So in Ansem's account, God becomes human because this was the only way to make satisfaction for sin. Only humans owe the debt. So God becomes human in order to repay the debt. Okay, yeah. As a human being, Christ owes the debt. But as God, he pays the debt. Rather than looking at Christ's death as an innocent person being unjustly punished, Ansem takes the view that Christ is merciful by paying the debt for our sins. In other words, he's both the victim and the person perpetuating the problem. He takes on, actually, what we've done. So we can see that what we believe about Jesus Christ is very critical in this whole realm of being able to give forgiveness for something we cannot ever repay, which is the debt of our sin. The Christmas celebration is a reminder each and every year that God became a man and paid a debt for us. That's what we need to remember. We need to see why God, not only why God had to die, but we need to understand what really motivates God for doing that action. And so John, and later the Apostle Paul, will tell us that God died for us because of who he is, and not because of who we are or what we've done. Let's just roll that back for a minute. Just think about that for a minute. You know, God did something for us because of who he is, not because of something we have or have not done. It's not really initiated from us. You know, so often in our worlds, we're at the center of things, but the reality is we're really not. And so God himself takes on this action on our behalf, and it's described why he does this. God's gift of forgiveness is actually granted in spite of us. And here's how Paul writes it. He says here in John 3.16, For God so loved. That word should just be ringing in our ears. God loves us. And as a matter of fact, Paul goes even further and says it this way, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I don't know about you, but it's, you know, it's, it's one thing to do something nice for people you know and you love. It's another thing to do something extraordinarily sacrificial for someone who doesn't know you or who doesn't like you or who's even your enemy. And this was the stage at which God showed his love to us. While we were at enmity with God, while we were fighting with God, while we wanted nothing to do with God, God revealed his love to us. He reached out to us in our state of greatest need and died for us. That's an amazing thought. I mean, you could just meditate on that and that could, you know, really do something in your life. To really bring this home in our minds of what we actually have done in order to deserve God's forgiveness, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. And I love this chapter. And I actually share this chapter with a lot of people. And I point a few things out as I read it. And it starts here. As for you, he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. You were dead. Now, I know a little bit about grammar. That's past tense. 
So now we're alive. But we were once dead. And I always ask the question, what can a dead person do? And what's the right answer? Nothing, right? You know? I remember reading this years ago. One person, you know, was challenging his pastor because the pastor said, you have the weight of sin upon you. And this person said, I don't feel anything. And then he asked the question, what, you know, if you put 10,000 pounds on a dead person, what are they going to feel? And the answer is nothing. And so when we're dead in sins, we don't feel anything. We don't even feel bad about what we're doing. That's because we're dead. We're, we're, we're disconnected. We're not engaged with God. There's no relationship. We have no feeling. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. And then it says, in which you used to live. Notice that's past tense again. He's talking about a condition that we once we're in. He says, when you follow the ways of this world, can I just say something to all of us? Why do we have to be in step with the culture? That culture is following the ways of this world. It's out of step with God, folks. We should not be in step with the culture. We need to be in step with God. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's a nice description for whom? That's a description for Satan, our adversary, the spiritual foe of God and humanity. He's the, he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So most people are living in a condition that's in disobedience to God. That's what he's describing. He said, that's where you once were. You're no longer there. All of us also lived among them at one time. How did we live? We were motivated by gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. What was driving our life was our sin nature. And then he goes on to say, and we followed its desires and its thoughts, and like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. In other words, we were in a conflicted relationship with God. And because we were in a conflicted relationship with God, we were in a conflicted relationship with other people, because obviously we're in a conflicted relationship with ourselves. There's a lot of people who are absolutely miserable out there. Does anybody say amen to that fact? They're unhappy campers. And you can't help uncampy campers because they're miserable and they make the people around them miserable and they're even in a miserable condition before God. I'm just kind of paraphrasing it. You've got to change what's going on on the inside of you. And how does that happen? You've got to get right with God. Look what verse 4. But because of his great love for us. See, we're dead. But because of his great love for us. What does God do? God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now you say, well, what is grace, pastor? It's a gift. God gives a gift. You know, when somebody gives you a gift, did you earn it? If you earned it, it would not be a gift. And so someone out of the goodness in their heart gives you something, that's a gift. And God gives us the gift of his love. Is that amazing? God loves us and he gives us this gift of forgiveness. He satisfies our debt by dying in our place. Wow, I just love this, these texts of scripture. Here in our text from John's gospel, we discover three elements regarding the nature of God's love to us. It's a very simple message today. First of all is the extent of God's love. Probably the most well-known passage in the Bible. It has the entire gospel framed in one verse. 
In John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him, believes in the Son, shall not perish but have eternal life. The idea is not how much God loved, but how God loved. How did God love? He demonstrated it by being our substitute. He died in our place. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's love. You know, when people say, well, you know, God doesn't love me. I go, yes, he does. Well, I don't feel it. You don't have to feel it. He's demonstrated it. He died for us on the cross. Is that connecting? That's that's as good as it's going to get, guys. You know, it's as good as it's going to get. You know, somebody willing to die for you, someone who we don't know willing to die for us, someone who's dying because we're the culprit, because we're the guilty party, they're taking our punishment. That is so absolutely amazing. God loved us so much that the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were involved in this amazing plan. First of all, we discovered the Father planned it. Secondly, we know that Jesus provided for it. He died in our place. And we also know that's the Holy Spirit that has to apply it to our lives. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that convicts or convinces us of our sin and gives us the gift of Christ in our hearts. (coughs) So we have all three of the personhood of the Godhead that are involved in salvation. You know... We all, we all recognize the great sacrifice Jesus did, right? But sometimes we don't understand the great sacrifice the Father did. You go, yeah, well, he just planned it, Pastor. What's that? No sweat, right? Well, think about what you're saying when you say that. How many would say, if I had an only son and I have to give him up for some person that doesn't deserve it, and I'm allowing my son to die for them, that's a pretty big sacrifice. And you know, that happens a lot, even in life. You know, you think of some of these young men that go off to fight in a war and they lay down their lives for the rest of the people who some of them could care less even about the fact that somebody went and laid down their life for them. Isn't that true? That is true. So we need to understand the sacrifice. If you really don't get it, read the story again in Genesis 22 of Abraham when God spoke to him and said, Abraham, I want you to offer up your only son. And Abraham obeyed God and went to Mount Moriah and was prepared to offer up his son Isaac. The only reason he didn't do it was God stopped him. And God said he would make a provision. I believe at that moment, Abraham had an insight into the heart of God the Father. Because though Abraham was spared his son, God did not spare his son. And Abraham had a sense of what it was like to lose, in a sense, his own son. It's, It's a pretty powerful emotion. But you know what really... Another story that I read years ago is a story of a man by the name of John Griffin. John Griffin actually lived during the Great Depression. He lived in the state of Missouri. He was a bridge controller. He was the guy that was controlling, lifting the bridge across a river so that, you know, boats could go by. And then he would, you know, lower the gate. I mean, the the drawbridge would come down and then the train would come rolling over. Well, one day John Griffin brought his son. This is in the summer of 1937, brought his eight-year-old son, Greg, to work with him. And so they were, you know, passing the time at noon, enjoying each other's company. And then suddenly John heard the whistle of the train, realized, I got to go back up in the control tower and lower the drawbridge. And so as he went all the way up there, 
you know, and he was hurrying because by now the train whistle is shrieking and he knows he's got to drop the gate down so the train can go across safely. And he knew, too, that there was probably hundreds of people aboard the train. And so when he was about to drop the lever, there's, there a sight caught his eye that caused his heart to leap in his throat. He saw his son had fallen from the observation tower into the massive gearbox. And so now in a flash, and everybody knows if you've ever been in a, a moment like an accident or something, everything goes into slow motion. And it was like everything was in slow motion. He's trying to figure out how he can save his son and yet save the people on the train. And in that slow motion moment, he realizes he cannot do both. And he has to make this terrible decision. So he makes the decision and he starts to lower the drawbridge down. And eventually the train comes rolling by. And all of these people, he could see them, the passenger train with hundreds of people on board. He's looking and there are people reading their paper oblivious to what had just transpired. There were other people eating in the train. There were people, you know, just, you know, just having oblivious to the amazing sacrifice this man made because now his son has perished. And so John Griffin, you know, with retching agony, cries out at the steel train and says, I sacrifice my son for you people. Do you really care? Really, isn't that the words of our Father in heaven? Look what I did for you. Do you really care? And for the majority of people in our city, the answer is, I could care less. I could care less. Let me move on to the second element we discover is the effectiveness of God's love. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. The Bible says very clearly in verse 17, he came to save it. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's an important statement, through Christ. There is no other way to be saved, the Bible says, except for through Christ. There's no under name under heaven which by, by which men can be saved or women can be saved, but by the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to come to the Father but by me. It's by what Jesus Christ has done. He did a sacrificial substitutionary death. The key to salvation rather than condemnation is for us to embrace the gift of love. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Our trust in Christ delivers us from condemnation. Paul says, if anyone, you know, you know, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If I am a Christian today, if I've given my life to Christ, I'm a new creation, I'm no longer under condemnation. I will never be judged for my sin. That's an amazing thing. And to even think that way diminishes what Jesus did on the cross. He died for my sin. He took my sin. Isn't that beautiful? I love how John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sin of the world. And I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful for this season that reminds me that Jesus takes away my sin. That is so powerful. That's the hope of our nation, folks. That's the hope of this world today and all the evil that is in it, that Jesus is willing to take away our sin. Well... While society, for the most part, either ignores God 
or worse, blames God. How many know that people blame God for the shape our world is in? And you know, I love the story that's told of an atheist barber who's, you know, walking with a minister one day and they were coming through a very rough part of town and uh, the, bar- the barber is basically pointing out the people. He says, hey, listen, if there's a loving God, how can he permit all of this poverty, suffering, and violence among these people? Why doesn't he save them from all of this? And just then a disheveled man walks by. He's unshaven and filthy, has long, scraggly hair hanging down his neck. And the minister pointed to him and said, well, you're a barber and claim to be a good one. So why don't you allow that man to be unkept and unshaved? Why, the barber stuttered. Uh, he, he never gave me a chance to fix him up. Exactly, said the minister. Men are what they are because they reject God's help. That's a pretty powerful point, I think. F.F. F. Bruce says, The man who depreciates Christ or thinks him unworthy of his allegiance passes judgment on himself and not on Christ. He does not need to wait until the day of judgment. The verdict on him has been pronounced already. There will indeed be a final day of judgment, but that day will serve only to confirm, you know, basically the judgment that's already been passed. And that's true. When people move, come to Christ, they move from living in condemnation to living in freedom. That's a beautiful thought. We are delivered from all that sin sentences humanity towards. You know, we now have a purpose for living. We now have a joy that is unspeakable. Listen to what Paul says. Even though, Peter, sorry. Listen to what he says in the midst of all the difficulties in life. And yeah, there are trials. You know, we're realistic. There are challenges in this life, is there not? Of course there are. And this is what Peter says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy For you have received the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, the the, the trials are just developing us. And now as we trust him, we're going to see the ultimate end result of our faith. Which is what? The salvation of our souls. What a beautiful thing. Stephen Smalley writes, The vital key to religious experience in Hebrew faith is hearing that leads to obedience rather than seeing. This is a very important thought. You know, think about it. Faith comes by what? Hearing, not seeing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As you and I hear God's voice speak to our spirit and we respond in obedience, that's what brings about change in our lives. As a matter of fact, we have problems in this life with seeing. Let me give you what I mean. We all have what we call a cognitive bias. Anybody have heard that term before? And it just basically goes this way. Whatever we believe, it's really hard to change our mind. And we always look for supportive data to support our way of thinking. We all have cognitive bias. Now, (coughs) what happens is cognitive bias can keep us from the truth. That's the sad part. We can continue to believe a lie. We can believe a lie about ourselves. We can believe lies about others. We can believe lies about God. In other words, we believe what we want to believe many times in spite of the evidence. You can even bring the evidence to people and they still don't buy it. But to know the truth. Listen to what the scripture says. It's the truth that sets people free. And you know, if we want to believe a lie, we're going to stay in bondage. But if we believe the truth, if we embrace the truth, you say, what's the truth? That's what Pilate asked. The truth is a person. 
And the person is Jesus Christ. And the moment I surrender to him, I experience the truth in my life and it sets me free. All of a sudden, all kinds of things start happening. One, there's joy that comes into my life. Two, hope comes into my life. Three, you know, condemnation is gone. Four, I have a purpose that transcends just living for this world. Number five, when I come to the end of my life, I'm not, you, you know, regret, I'm not living full of regret. You know the beautiful thing about coming to Christ? It can eliminate a lot of regret in your life. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I can look back. I'm a little older. I've been a Christian for over 40 some odd years. I can honestly say this. I have very few regrets as a Christian. I had far more regrets before I was a Christian. That's where my regrets mainly are. There, in that camp. But afterwards, for the most part, you know, if you're trying to obey God, at the end, if you do the right thing, you won't live with regret. And I'll, I'll tell you this, being a pastor for 35 years, I've, had, I've yet to meet one person come to my office and say, Pastor, I fully regret serving God all the days of my life. I haven't had that conversation with anybody. No one's come to me and said, you know, it's been a terrible life, Pastor. I fully regret. I gave up, you know, doing all the bad stuff because I'm now doing the right stuff. I haven't heard that conversation. But I've had a lot of people come to me and say, I fully regret living a self-centered, selfish, sinful life. I've heard that over and over and over again. And that tells me something. It's really nice to live with a clean conscience. How many can say amen to that? It's really nice to go to bed at night and you're not, you know, frustrated and upset and, you know, all the angst and anxieties that people have because they're making bad choices. It's really freeing. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Let me move on to the final element, the evidence of God's love. How do we know that we're experiencing God's love in our life? Here's what I'm going to give you an answer. Basically, by the direction of your life. We're either moving towards God or we're moving away from God. There's only two directions in life. You know, a lot of people, oh, there's all these different ways. No, no, it's either towards God or away from God. There's only two directions. And when we move away from God, it reflects a wrong, hard attitude. Look at verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Now, we're speaking in moral terms. This is a metaphor. Light is a metaphor here. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So let me ask a question. Why do people choose the wrong path? Because they want to do the evil things. So who's perpetuating evil, God or sinful humanity? And the answer is sinful humanity. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See, we have this metaphor, light representing what's right and darkness which represents sin and evil. Sin is really an absence of love. John tells us in his epistle, God is love. We cannot be filled with God and be living in continuous sin. You know, you can, you can tell me that, but I don't buy it. Because the scriptures don't teach that. And so we know, 1 John 4, 16, and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Now, it's not love is God. Because a lot of people, you know, they'll act like love is God. But no, God is love. In other words, the characteristic of God is loving. God is a loving person. How many like that about God? He's full of love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in that person. That's what he's saying. I like that. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. 
When you walk with God, you become like God. When you're walking in the right direction, you know what? He starts changing you. Your attitudes change. Your desires change. You have a desire that gets beyond yourself, and you become a more loving person. And how many here, just by an uplifted hand, you can say, since I've been a Christian, I've noticed I'm moving towards becoming a more loving person. That's my testimony. That's true. Because before, it was all about me. But now that I'm a Christian, it's because I've moved beyond myself. And that's what love is about. Love is not focusing on yourself. It's moving beyond yourself. And then we can have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. You know? What a great thing. I remember years ago, I was a brand new person in the faith, you know, and my grandmother looked at me and I was sharing some things and she says, uh, no, it was my aunt. And she looked at me and my grandmother was in the room. <laughs> she, she says, you know, when I look at you, I see, I see Christ. I see Jesus in you. That's a high compliment, right? You know, we're talking about spiritual things. And my grandmother, you know, she's Catholic. She said, well, do you see the Virgin Mary in me? We all, we all chuckle. She's, she, was, she was a beautiful lady, a sweetheart. She was just a real sweetheart. But what am I saying? That we become like Christ. We become Christ-like. That's why we were called Christians. We're becoming like him. That's the goal of the Christian life. There is no fear in love. I love this. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And God wants to deliver us here. I know some people, you know, there's fears in your life. God wants to set you free from your fear. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't want you to live in fear. He wants you to live in faith. Fear is not faith, folks. He wants you to live with this quiet confidence in God's precious love, knowing that you're deeply loved and you're precious in the eyes of God. And I'm going to bring that out in just a moment. R.V. Trasker says this, sin invariably leads the sinner to hide themselves from God. Isn't that the truth? And then you think of the story of our first parents in the garden. What happened when they sinned? What did they do? They tried to hide themselves from God. Now, how many know that's impossible to do? But isn't that what people are doing today, trying to hide themselves from God? And yet we see this picture of God walking in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? I think God knew where he was. But I think it's meant for us, it's a rhetorical question. It's really asking us the question, where are we? Where are you today? Are you hiding from God? Are you running from God? Because there's only two directions. You're either running to God or you're running from God. And I think that our text here, that is when we do evil, it's actually a reflection of our attitude towards God. We're not loving God. Rather, we're placing ourselves in place of God. We're dethroning God from his rightful place in our lives and putting ourselves on that throne. And the only problem with that is we lack the wisdom to truly govern ourselves right. Now, here's how we do it. You know, when we decide in our lives what's right for us or what's wrong for us, we're playing God. See, only God can determine what's right or wrong. And I'm just telling you because, you know, the scriptures teach us what's right or wrong. But when we decide, well, that's, that's good for somebody else. I have my own law. I do what I'm going to do. Well, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Sin is sin. So if you choose to be a God unto yourself and make wrong choices, you're going to suffer as a, a consequence of that. And people do that all the time. You know, they're doing that all the time. And I think we're not as wise as God. He knows what is best. We think we know what we want, and we decide what is best. But then if it's not God's will, we suffer, and so do others because of our sin. 
And how many have ever had this experience in your life where you go, I really want this, and when you got it, you realize, I really didn't want it. Come on, come on now. Isn't that the truth? We do that all the time. That's the nature, that's the seductive nature of sin in our lives. You know, we think we want it, and then you get it. Well, I, I didn't really need that. So, this is why the scriptures talk about self. <coughs> Excuse me. He says it this way. The real test of love is not what we say to each other, but it's demonstrated by our actions. See, a lot of us say things, but we do something different. And this is what Paul writes to Titus. They claim to know God. So there's people claiming to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Can I just say something? Don't deceive yourself. Don't say, well, I'm a Christian, and then you're living in sin. It doesn't work. It says, listen to what Paul says. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything for good. Wow. Is that strong language? So we have to move away from just professing something and actually allow God's life to come inside of us so we can be changed from the inside out. And then we can change our actions. And that's what's really defining who we really are. It's not what we say we are. It's what we're doing that evidences who we truly are. Love is putting others ahead of ourselves. How many know that's true? That's what true love is. And here's what Jesus says in Mark's gospel. He said this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone should come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let me just say something. Don't, don't be so enamored by your culture. Don't feel like you've got to fit in with the culture, folks. I want to just tell you that right up front. We cannot be ashamed of Christ. And we cannot be ashamed of his words. And I'm just saying, who cares what people think? You know what? If we're going to judge this time and this culture right now by historical standards, this will be described as a terribly wicked and sinful culture. That's reality. And so I don't want to be lumped in with everybody else. I want to, I want to stand aside from this culture and say, you know what? I, I don't want to live like this. I, I, I'd rather be vexed in my soul like Lot. You know what I'm saying? I want to be doing the right thing. Because, you know, maybe because I've studied history. Maybe it's because I've been in other cultures. I recognize how impoverished this culture is really becoming all the time. Okay, now, what is really interesting is that in another context, Jesus says it almost seems conflicting. He says here, deny yourself. But now he says this in another context. Love your neighbor as yourself. So now we're to love ourselves. So here's one that says deny self. Here's one text that says do you love, do you love yourself. So what is this really all about, pastors? Is, this, is the Bible confused? No, it's not. I love how John Stott writes so brilliantly in the book, The Cross of Christ. He asked the question, how is it possible to value ourselves and deny ourselves simultaneously? This is a very powerful question. How many think this is a great question? How can you deny yourself and yet, you know, value yourself at the same time? 
And here's what he says, and I love this. What we are, ourself, or our personal identity, is partly the result of the creation. Do you realize that every human being was created in the image of God? Therefore, every human being has value. Every human being has dignity, okay? But we're also a result of the fall, which means that that image has been defaced. That image has been marred by sin. You follow that? So in a sense, we have two selves. We have the self that God made, and we have the self that has fallen. Are you following this thought? Let me move on. The self we are to deny, disown, and crucify is our fallen self, our sin nature, our sinful self. That's the part we deny. And everything within us that is incompatible with Jesus Christ, hence his command, let him deny himself and let him follow me. The self we are to affirm and value is the created self that's created in the image of God, which is compatible with Jesus Christ, hence the statement that if we lose ourselves by self-denial, we shall find ourselves. I like that, because that's the truth. True self-denial, the denial of the false self, is not the road to self-destruction, but the road to self-discovery. That's how you become actualized. You know, a lot of people talk about self-actualization. This is how it happens. It's by denying our sinful self. And then we become, you know, truly self-actualized as a person. We become the person we always wanted to become. We become that kind person, that forgiving person, that loving person, that serving person. You know, the person that we can respect. We can actually start respecting ourselves. A lot of people don't have any respect for themselves. Come on now. It's the truth. And I'm, I'm trying to point out to you, this is the way to get to this place. I'm teaching you today. When we move towards God, it's because of what God has done for us. Verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what he has done has been done through God. That which we love, we run to. That which we love, we run to. You know, it really hit me a couple of years ago. You know, you have children, and children are different than grandchildren. Everybody in this room that has children and grandchildren will understand the difference. When you're a parent, you're busy trying to raise a child. You've got all the demands on your time. You're trying to make a living. You're trying to, you know, you follow what I'm saying? You're in that developmental stage. You're sleep deprived at times, you know. You're working. You're trying to provide. You're struggling through life. Am I relating to all the young people? Is this, is this connecting? You guys all getting this? <coughs> so then you get a little older and your children grow up and they have children and uh, you don't have the same level of responsibility. So when your grandchildren come over, it's a joy. It's like your kids with no strings attached. You know? You don't have to deal with the disciplinary issues. You have all the fun things with them. And what's really neat about grandkids is their response to a grandparent. I don't know why. It was really amazing to me. You know, my, my daughter and son-in-law do far more for her, their children than I do for them. But all of a sudden, Ari, little girl, two, three years old, screaming, running, poppy, throws herself in my arms like, you know, I'm the greatest thing on earth. I'm going, what is this? You know, it's awesome, right? That's why all the grandparents love it so much. I, I know where all their heads are at. They just love this experience, you know. But you know what it showed me? She's loving, she's running to that which she loves, okay? Here's what I want you to hear today. 
Which direction are you running? Are you running to God or away from God? Now, there's a beautiful story Jesus tells. I'm closing with this. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's a parable found in Luke chapter 15. It's a story of a young man that decides he doesn't want to be in his father's house, so he runs away from his father. Okay? He takes it on like, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do what I want. And he goes out and he lives a riotous life and he's totally depreciating himself. Remember, Jesus says, if you try to find yourself, you'll lose yourself. But if you lose your false self, you'll gain your true self. I'm paraphrasing now. He runs after his false self. He consumes himself in this. And when he's done, he's totally impoverished as a person. He's living now in such a poverty-stricken state, both emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. He's bankrupt in every level. And he has, he finally, the Bible says, he comes to himself and he realizes that his father, who he ran away from, treated his servants better than he's being treated. And he says, I've got to go back and just ask my dad if I can work for him. Meanwhile, the father has been looking every day, hoping, not knowing where his son has gone. And one day, he sees this broken mass of humanity. And you know what? Most people wouldn't even recognize him, but because of the Father's love, he knew immediately who he was. He could tell by his walk. He could tell by something. And the Bible says, and the Father lifted up his robes, which in that culture was a sign of dishonoring yourself. And he ran to the Son, threw his arms around him and embraced him. The son said, I don't even, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. The father would have nothing of it. He said, we're going to celebrate. My son who was lost is now found. The one who I thought was dead is now alive. Bring the robe. Bring the fatted calf. Let's celebrate. I've got my son back. He was so overjoyed. Listen to me now. The father in heaven so loves us that he's running to us. He so loves us that he's running to us. But some of us are running from him. And I'm challenging you today to look at your life very square and say, what self am I pursuing? The false self or the true self? And if it's the false self, it's diminishing you. And if it's the true self, you will become actualized as a person. And I want you to hear this. The Father is running to you. So if you're running to the Father... You're going to have a great reunion. But a lot of people in our, our city are running away from God. Isn't that true? But some of us are choosing to run to him. Let's stand. <clears throat> Just with every head bowed this morning, I want to give you an opportunity, you know, as we ask ourselves these amazing questions. Your view of God is a reflection of your relationship with God. Some of us see God as condemning. That's because you don't know him very well. Are you following what I'm saying? If you see God as a condemning person, if you see him only as a judge, you don't see him as the Savior. God is a Savior. He is the most loving person on this planet. He is far more loving than any other person. I can tell you that right now. I've been alive for a long time now. I tell you, God... The Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the most loving people on the planet. They care about me. They care about you more than you and I could ever dream. They've proven that by planning this thing called salvation. 
And I'll tell you, when I was a young person, one day I got arrested by God and I turned my face around. And when I turned towards God, I found a loving embrace. I found amazing forgiveness. I found healing for the broken places in my life. I experienced forgiveness, restoration. I discovered a purpose for living. And I'm telling you right now, as we're standing here today, which direction are you running? Have you turned your back on God and you're moving away from Him? You're pursuing the false self? I'm going to tell you, I'm warning you today. You're just depreciating yourself. You're destroying your life. You know, you, know, you will regret that. I can guarantee you. But if you today awaken to the call of God's voice and say, I'm going to turn my, my back to my life. I'm going to turn my face towards God. I'll tell you right now, what you're going to meet is a father running to you and throwing his arms around you. How many here, you say, I want to run to God. I want to run. I got my hand up. I want to run to God today. I want to be like my granddaughter. I just want to run to God today. I want to, you know, fall into the arms of his loving embrace. Is that you today? How many here say, you know what? I want to, Pastor. I want to turn away. Let's put all our hands down. You're, maybe you're here today Say, so you know what? I need to turn away and turn to him. I need to turn away from the false self and turn to the truth. That's you today. Raise your hand. Is there anybody here? All right. That's great. People are responding. Let's pray today. Let's ask God to help us. Amen. Christmas is about the great gift. That's why I entitled this sermon, The Greatest Gift. The greatest gift is not something we receive as a thing from someone else. The greatest gift you can receive from a person is the gift of themselves. And God loves you and I so much, he gave himself. Isn't that beautiful? You know, anything less than that is less of a gift. God gave you and I the ultimate gift. He gave us the gift of himself. Wow. Let's just open our hearts to him. Father, I want to just stop and thank you this morning for this amazing gift this gift of your love, this gift of your personhood, the way you come into our lives and you transform us. You bring hope and health and healing and joy and peace and purpose. Lord, we thank you for these amazing things you bring. But ultimately, what's more important than all of that is yourself. You've given us yourself. You've not withheld yourself, Lord. We thank you for that. And today we choose not to withhold ourselves from you and we give ourselves fully to you today. We surrender ourselves to you. We want to experience your presence in such an amazing way and so we give our entire self to you because we know that when we do that, we don't bankrupt ourselves. We're fully actualized, fully enriched by your presence and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. God bless you as you leave today.